Well, good morning. So I'm glad to be here with you this morning as we continue our churchwide campaign called The Story. And if you've been following along with us, if you've been reading with us, if you've been coming to the services, you're probably exhausted by now. You're probably thinking, I mean, this nation, these people just cannot get it right. You with me? It seems rather depressing, doesn't it? Just over and over again, they get caught up in the same things. I mean, they're not living into the purpose that God created them for. And it seems like even the leaders, they may do some good things every once in a while, but then they lead them right back to corruption. Over and over again, God says they're worshiping other things. And just so we're on the same page, because if you haven't been here, you're like, Brian, I have, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about this morning. Let me summarize for you in two minutes, 16 weeks worth of sermons, okay? It says, in the beginning, God created everything. He designed humans to have a special relationship with him. Humans were created in the image of God, and we were to be his image bearers on this earth. And he told us to rule the earth and to subdue it and to multiply. And the idea of subdue is to rule the earth on his behalf. We mediate it for God. That's our purpose. That's what we were created for, to be his image bearers on this earth. As I told you before, the best example I've ever heard is that human beings were created like angled mirrors. We're to reflect God's goodness, his greatness, his creative order into the world but then we sum up all the goodness and greatness and praise it back to him. So we reflect God into the world and then we sum up everything and thank him back for all that he is. So we were created, but then we see that we disobeyed. The Bible calls it what? What's the word for us disobeying God? Sydney, even if you've never been in church, you know that word. All right, we were created with a choice and we chose to sin, we disobeyed God, which brought some terrible, terrible things into the world. Then we see God call this man named Abraham and said, hey, I'm gonna make an entire nation through you. That's where we get the idea, that's where we learn about the nation of Israel and the development and the growth. We learn about Jacob and Moses and Joshua. We learn that Israel becomes this great kingdom with David and Solomon, all these different kings. But remember, one thing God did with him is he made a covenant, right? And, and we know this has, has a whole bunch of rules, but the big ones are 10, what are they called? Yeah, all right, 10 commandments. Well, here's the first two. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heavens above or the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down, which carries the idea of submission to them or worship them. So Israel was giving these laws, these commands, and God said, hey, if you obey me fully, I'm gonna bless you like no other nation has ever seen. If you disobey me, the reverse is gonna happen. I'm gonna take my hand of protection off of you and you're gonna feel the consequences of disobedience to me. But the one thing God said made it very clear is, hey, idolatry, worshiping anything else, no. You cannot do it. Do not worship anything but me. We were designed to rule on God's behalf. So why would we submit the authority he gave us to created things and allow them to rule us? It makes no sense, God would say. And so the nation takes these laws from God, they move into their land, but over and over they get it wrong. Every once in a while it seems like they do some things right, but then they fall back and start worshiping the other gods around them. And although Israel grew into a great nation, they ended up being divided because of their sin. And then eventually the 
northern tribes, the nation of Israel, which you would have read this week, gets taken away, and it's called the Lost Tribes of Israel. Anybody ever heard that idea of Lost Tribes of Israel? That's what you read about this week. These 10 tribes who get taken away to never return again. And this writer of 2 Kings, he sums it up with one sentence, and it's kind of like gut-wrenching, but here's what he says. He says, they followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. Like, that's kind of kind of harsh, isn't it? We said they followed empty idols and themselves became empty. And they never seemed to get away from this. So the northern tribe, they're taken away. Assyria comes and conquers them. We don't hear from them again. They're gone. And, and if you're like me, you probably ask, I mean, like Israel, seriously, why haven't you learned by now? This is silly. Why would you chase after other things? Why would you worship other things? Why would you give yourself away to the created things? I mean, why do you keep turning to idolatry? Because most of us, when we hear the word idolatry, we think of something archaic, don't we? Something that happened back then, but not now. Something that unenlightened people fall into. So Israel, why would you do such a thing? To which the Apostle Paul chimes in and says, well, actually, Brian, have you looked in the mirror recently? Apostle Paul usually isn't fun to read. I'm just giving you a heads up. And just to let you know, you will probably be very uncomfortable today, but I think we're okay with that, aren't we? Well, we're going to be anyways, most likely okay, because we're going to talk about idolatry. That's the issue. That's the thing. And you've seen it enough in this story to realize God doesn't play with it. God is not okay with it. And it's the thing above all other things that God does not tolerate. You see, idolatry wasn't just Israel's thing. Idolatry is all of our thing. Tim Keller says, idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. And luckily for us, he explains why. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Romans. We're gonna be in Romans chapter one today. We're gonna get through a lot of Bible verses. I would say fast, but we all know that's not gonna happen. So we're gonna go through uh, Romans chapter one, some of it this morning. If you have your Bibles, excuse me, yeah, Romans chapter one, and what we're gonna see is we're gonna start in verse 18. We're gonna jump into the beginning of Paul's teaching about this idea He's already explained who he is to this church in Rome. He's never met them. He's longing to see them. He wants to visit them. He wants to encourage them. He wants to teach them. But he says, I want to come so I can reach other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he's going to launch into a big story about why he wants to reach people with the gospel. He says, here's why I'm eager to do this. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, the wrath already got uncomfortable, didn't it? We're only two words in, and now it gets uncomfortable. Paul says, because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, let's stop. The idea of the wrath of God is always connected to the righteousness of God. If God is righteous, 
which means God is just, God is holy, God is fair. That means he has to deal with the unrighteousness of the world. But notice what Paul says. He says it's being revealed, currently being revealed against ungodliness, or excuse me, godlessness and wickedness. You see, godlessness is the vertical problem with God. It's where we fail to worship him. Wickedness can also be translated injustice is the horizontal problem with others. Uh, Bill Mount's New Testament scholar says, a lack of respect for God leads to a lack of injustice, excuse me, justice for his people. So Paul says, hey, the wrath of God is being poured out against godlessness and wickedness. How did they get to this place, Paul says? They suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. You see, truth isn't a subjective, personal thing. According to Paul, truth is a God thing. According to Paul, we don't get to decide the truth that's been given to us. And I remember Paul is a Jewish scholar. He's an Old Testament scholar. He knows it very well. He knows the problems of his people. He knows all about 2 Kings, which is what we're reading in the story. What Paul is appealing to about this truth of God is Genesis chapter one. It's foundational to everything. It's that we were made in the image of whom? God, okay. And so we are central to God's plan of creation and we're central to rule his creation on his behalf. We were made to know him, to worship him, to love him and to serve him. And if he is God and is the creator, does that give him the right to dictate to his creation how they should act? The answer is, well, of course. He made it all. But C.N.T. Wright says, well, the first casualty of war is truth. And that's what they're suppressing, the truth of a creator. So what leads to this godlessness and wickedness? He tells us, he said, since, verse 19, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so people are without excuse. So now Paul's appeals to the natural revelation of God. He says, listen, creation bears witness to a creator. He says, so nobody's off the hook here. Paul says, look around, look at the world. It's screaming divine order. It's screaming that somebody has his hands. Somebody spoke this thing. Maybe not spoke, but somebody made this thing into existence, which the Bible tells us God spoke it into existence. So he's appealing to them. Hey, by denying God, you're denying the power of God. You're denying his claim as creator. Just look around. The creation bears witness that there is a creator. Verse 20 says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So here's the problem, Paul says. They didn't glorify and honor and thank God. In other words, they failed to worship God. He tells us when we fail to worship God, our hearts and our minds get twisted. That's the idea. He says they're thinking, their hearts. Our mind, our hearts. He's saying it gets out of whack. It gets out of alignment. It doesn't work. If we don't connect with the creator, then how we think and behave aren't gonna be in line with what God 
has asked us to do, how he has created us to be. It's kind of like Monopoly. If you were given Monopoly with no directions, what is the chances you'd play it correctly? We don't even play it correctly and we have the directions. Have you noticed that? We all have different rules. Nobody plays it right. That's his point. If you don't connect with the creator, then your heart and your mind, they're gonna get out of whack. They're not gonna be in the right place. Here's why. I'm gonna read this next section. It's, it's uh, verse 22 through 25 together. Then we're gonna break it down. He says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now let's take this in sections. Paul is, this, this, this letter, this book is very dense. It's very hard to read. Let's just walk through verse 22 through 23. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, and reptiles. So the idea is they suppress the truth about God. They think they're wise enough and smart enough so they come up with their own truth, their own way. Hey, I have this figured out. I have the answers. I'm intelligent. I'm good. Don't worry. I got this taken care of. To which Paul says, well, that's just foolish thinking because you end up missing it. They exchange the glory of the immortal God. Pay attention, immortal versus Mortal things. Here's what Paul's getting at. Humans were created to worship. I've repeated myself. I'm gonna keep saying that. We were created to worship. We all will live for something. We all have to believe in something. We all try to make sense out of this world and this life by looking for a purpose, our meeting, our direction, you name it. So all humans, and you know this to be true, we go, why am I here? What am I doing? What am I living for? So Paul says when we suppress the truth of God, we start living for something else. We start serving something else. We give up the immortal God for mortal things. Paul's saying it's the equivalent of trading away a billion dollars for a penny. Why would you give up the immortal for the mortal? That makes no sense, Paul says. Verse 25, he said they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now, Paul's saying, so it's not that you just suppress the truth of God and then you go on living a good moral life. Like, hey, I got this. I'm good. I can just figure it out in my life. He's like, well, no, that's not what happens. You exchange, you trade off, you give up one for another. There's no in-between. If you give up God, you're automatically assuming something else because we're all made to worship. We're all made to give ourselves to something. So we exchange the immortal for the mortal. Since you and I were created to reflect the image of God, we will reflect what we worship. Here's the problem. You and I will naturally, and you can't help it, will reflect what you worship. You can embrace the truth of the immortal God, the creator of everything, which will lead you to worship and serving him. 
you can embrace the truth of God, the immortal creator who given us instructions on how to live, behave, what to do, and then we will worship and serve him. This is where we reflect his image into the world. This is where we reflect his eternity, his glory, his goodness, his order, his love. This will bring life to other people. I mean, think about it, the things of God, love, joy, peace, patience, all of this will bring life to you and it brings life to other people. Think about it. As a pastor, sometimes people write me in letters of encouragement. They say, hey, what you did or what you said, it really spoke to me in this way. And when they write me those encouraging letters, do you know what it does? It gives me like, like life. Do you understand that? It's like, ah. It speaks to me. It, it, when people are nice and kind, they say, thank you, forgiveness. Think about how it makes you feel. It's like, well, this is life giving here. When we worship and serve God, will we reflect his life into the world, his goodness, we will bring life to others. Or you can exchange that and suppress the truth and it will lead you to worship and serve created things or mortal things. And here's what Paul's getting at. There's a big difference between mortal and immortal. Would we agree? Immortal lasts how long? It's never even started. It's always. Immortal, always. Mortal means it has a beginning, it has end. End. We have to, mortal means it has a beginning and has a what? End. Which means all mortal things are dying and decaying. All of them. Which means if we give ourselves away to the created, anything other than God, we will reflect death and decay back into the world. That's the opposite of God. That's a life void of God. We reflect those things that we don't like, those things that hurt people, because just as much an encouraging note will lift me up, a word of gossip behind my back will deflate me. You ever found out someone was talking about you behind your back? Y'all never had that happen? How'd it make you feel, good? It's like a death blow, isn't it? It's reflecting things of this world that are dying and decaying. See, this problem with idolatry, it's not neutral. We don't just give up God and then automatically like, oh, we're just good. Paul's like, no. You reflect what you worship. If it's God, you will reflect his goodness, his greatness, his love, his mercy, his righteousness, his justice, his creative order into the world. If it's something else, we'll reflect death, decay, the envy, the bitterness, the evil into this world. Paul says in verse 24, he says, therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Paul repeats this idea three times, God gave them over. God's present wrath, like we're like, man, I don't, it makes me uncomfortable. Just Paul explains what his present wrath is. God's present wrath is letting people do what they want to do. Did you know that already? God's present wrath is letting people, he gives them over. Hey, you want to do that? Go for it. And it'll lead to where it leads. One author says, just have in your mind, he says it's like a boat. 
that's being carried off by the current. God takes his hand off of it and it lets the boat just go down where it's being led. One author says, excuse me, Bill Mount says, God's present wrath anticipates his final withdrawal from those who do not respond to his love. You see, he lets them continue down a path of what it looks like not to have God in their life. And that sin, those consequences should reflect that where I'm heading and where I'm going isn't somewhere I wanna be, which should lead them to what? Turn around. Sometimes we get in people's way where they need to experience. God says, no, go ahead. I need you to come back. You need to experience what a life without me is like. So he's allowing people to go that way. So hopefully they turn back. And that's what we see in the nation of Israel. God allows their sin. You want idolatry? You want to continue to ignore me? I'll take my hand of protection off of you. Let the false gods protect you. To which if something isn't real, can it protect you? Correct. They get carried away by the Syrians. Hey, let it play out then. Is this what you want? Go for it. So Paul says, verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural rela- sexual relations with unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men in receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul saying, okay, he's given examples now of the heart. You wanna see what a heart goes astray? He says, when people start chasing after the lustful things, when they get carried away by the lust in their hearts, N.T. Wright says this. I'm going to read it. It's rather long, but I think he just does a great job. He says, Paul assumes that there is such a structure. That is, that creation is not random or arbitrary. Taking Genesis 1 as the primary theological statement, he sees humans created in the image of God and given charge over the non-human creation. Humans are commanded to be fruitful. They are to celebrate in their male plus female complementarism and the abundant life-generating capacity of God's good world. And they are charged with bringing God's order to the world, acting as stewards of the garden and all that is in it. Male and females are very different, and they are designed to work together to make, with God, the music of creation. Something deep down, something deep within the structure of the world responds to the coming of like and unlike, something which cannot be reached by the mere joining together of the like and like. So Paul's point, this is how people, he's saying, hey, look, these relationships are not natural because God created us in an order and told us to multiply and be fruitful. What he's saying, he says, look, look at the biology. It, it doesn't work. With the creative world, how God designed, it doesn't work. You literally can't create life that way. But we could expand this. Paul's just giving an example. When you think about the lust that God gives people over to, we could say for some, it's same-sex relationships. Others, it's multiple sexual partners. Others, it's sexual relations outside of marriage. Others, it's stuff they look at the computer when nobody else is at home and on and on and on. Paul's saying, this is what it looks like when people get turned over. And I know this is uncomfortable, but there's a point. We'll get there. Just, pay, just watch. Now, don't paint Paul as this hateful bigot. That's not what's happening. 
He's the same person who puts a time bomb on slavery in his letter to um, Philemon. He does. He's the same one who says women aren't pieces of property in Ephesians 5.21, and you should fight for marriage equality that each person submit to one another. So don't read something he's not. Paul is so far ahead of his time, it's crazy. But he's saying something here is out of the creative order. He's saying if there is a creator, then there's a creative order. That's what Paul's appealing to. And sin has caused it to get out of place. But he's not done. He says, furthermore, just as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so they do not what they ought to be done. They have been filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolence, arrogance, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. It's like, okay, Paul's been 16 before. He gets it. They disobey their parents. Do you understand Paul just put you who disobeyed your parents in the same category as a murderer? So you thought, I was, no, Paul's offending everybody. I'm, you just gotta know that about Paul. He's an equal opportunist. He offends everybody. They disobey the parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree that who do such things deserve, really, Paul, death. They not only continue to do these things, but they also approve of those who practice them. To which you said, well. I'm pretty sure Paul's included everybody in this room by now, hasn't he? Yeah, that's his point. If you've disobeyed your parents, he says, yeah, I'm gonna throw you in the list with the murderer. Like, that's just what I do. These, again, are reflecting things other than whom? Would, would we think anything on this list reflects God's goodness and greatness in this world? We're like, well, no. He's like, exactly. And just in case anybody here isn't offended, Paul's not done. He says, you therefore have no excuse who passed judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who passed judgment do the... Ah. See, we've all committed these, although the frequency, extent, and degree are different. In other words, Paul has said every single one of us are adult, I, excuse me, idolaters. All of us. To which say, Paul, he said, no, no, all of us, if, if you've done any of these things, that means you've suppressed the truth of God at some point in your life, you've given your life over to something other than God, and you have reflected that image into the world. All of us have served the creation rather than the creator. And we go, well, this is kind of tough. I was like, I know. 
It's like depressing, isn't it? Like now you get the nation of Israel. It's like, it's depressing. Something's not right. But there's a reason you have to embrace it. You've been an idolater. I've been an idolater. And that's the root of all of our problems. We give ourselves to something else because Paul's not done. We don't have time, but he continues to argue for a couple of chapters what he's driving at. And here's what he finally arrives at in Romans chapter three, verse 10. He continues, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even You should know this one. One, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and they have together become, remember, worthless. Didn't we see that in the Old Testament? Paul's like, yeah, I'm thinking about that. They've all turned away and become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And in the verse he arrives that I know you know by now, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here's Paul's point. Israel's story, it's not unique. It's our story too. Just like Israel, we turn our back on God. Just like Israel, we're in danger of worshiping false idols. Just like Israel, we give ourselves away to things less than God. In the Old Testament, all the prophets pointed to, my goodness, God, can you do something? He's gonna do something. He says, somebody's finally gonna come. To which the writers in the New Testament say, yeah, no, he's already came. Let me tell you about him. His name is what? Exactly. Verse 24 says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. We can all be made right because of Jesus Christ. You see, that's what makes the good news of Jesus so amazing We've all fallen away. We've all been in this boat. But God wants to save us from it through Jesus Christ. You see, idolatry isn't just the world back then problem. Idolatry is all of our problem. You see, we're getting really close to the New Testament, only a couple more chapters to go. And it looks like it might get a little bit better, but it never actually does. The the story in the scriptures isn't that humans are basically good and then Jesus came to make us a bit better. The story in the scriptures that we are broken, fallen, idolaters who are in desperate need of a savior. Israel was never neutral. You and I are never neutral. So God did something about it. He sent Jesus Christ to save us, to redeem us. See, that's what makes idolatry so terrible. It's exactly what God saved us from. It's the source of all other sins. You cannot be rescued from Christ in this place you're in and then be rescued, but then stay there. In other words, you can come to Christ no matter what you've done, no matter what you're currently doing, no matter whatever you've done in your life, you can come to Christ. But the message is you can't stay there. Because there's a creator, we submit to his creative order. And he's redeemed us so we can live and follow him. 
You see, the New Testament says, as a Christian, you're no longer an idolater. You're now a saint saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. So don't live like that. Don't worship those other things because they're not neutral. You reflect that back into the world. And so all of us, we have to enthrone the true king of this world in our lives. You see, when we come to communion today, I want you to remember that you have been rescued and redeemed. This message has rocked me all week. I'm like, Paul, I don't think I'm that bad. Come on, Paul, like that, you're off. Paul, that's just, like, come on, that's not nice. I don't, I don't particularly care for how you're talking about me. I'm, I'm not joking at all. Like, I was, all, I'm like, Paul, come on. I said, well, when I minimize my sin, I minimize the cross. Ah, I need to elevate Jesus, get over my pride and realize I am broken in desperate need of a savior. And so I ask you today, when we think of idolatry, what does your heart desire? In your life, what is more important than God? What are you reflecting into this world? Is it love, peace, patience, kindness, forbearance, gentleness, self-control? How about this? Because this is a popular topic today. What gives you your identity? If you were to complete this, I am a what, how would you answer it? There's a slide. Yeah, I am a blank. How would you complete that? What would you say about yourself? Listen, if your identity, it's what you're attached to, what makes you you, if it is your career, your education, your family, your sexuality, your health, your failures, your successes, if it's anything other than Jesus Christ, you're missing it. It's I am a child of God through Jesus Christ. That is who you are through him. That is your identity, nothing else. And if you think you're something else, you're in danger of worshiping the wrong things. You see, idolatry is something you and I have to pay attention to because we naturally give, we naturally worship. But you dethrone an idol by enthroning the king. If you have an idol in your life, if you've been worshiping something else, if you've given yourself away to something else, you don't then remove it like, hey, I'm powerful enough to go in here and dismantle it. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is enthrone the king and he'll take care of it. Worship the king, cast your worship, your praises, and your thanksgiving to Jesus, and he'll take care of the rest. Suffocate the other idol by turning your direction to Jesus, because he is far more powerful than anything else. See, according to Paul, this all starts by suppressing the truth of God. So do we get into his word? Do we sing praises to him? For me, I've, I've decided to only listen to Christian music for a while. It's my personal thing. I said, I need to start worshiping a little bit more. How about your prayer? Are you thanking him? It all starts with the truth to which Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through so in a minute, we're gonna take communion and here's all I'm gonna ask you to do. 
Paul tells us to examine ourselves, to get our hearts right before we come to the table. This morning, I want you to think about that you've been saved, that you've been rescued, you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. It wasn't a small thing. It was a massive thing he's done for you and I. So if you have an idol in your life, if you've been giving yourself away to something other than Jesus, just confess that to him. Repent from it. Worship and praise him. I'm gonna pray for us. Then we're gonna have a time of just sitting down, reflecting and praying. It won't be long. Scott's gonna play the piano so it's not an uncomfortable silence. And then we're gonna come up and and grab the elements. But can we pray? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for saving us through the death of Jesus Christ. We thank you for giving us a new life through his resurrection. Father, it's gut-wrenching and heartbreaking to see how you've used sin and the things we've done without you. It's heartbreaking to see what we've reflected when we weren't honoring and worshiping you. It's humbling and shameful to hear it. It hurts. But yet we fall short of your glory and I embrace that and we embrace that and we thank you for Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, we're justified and made right in your eyes. Because of Jesus, we've been forgiven. Father, at some point in our lives, all of us are gonna turn to the wrong things. I pray that you show us what those are in our lives and we remember you are the only one worthy of our praise. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who hasn't given you their life, I pray that they dethrone their idols and enthrone Jesus as their king by believing in him, by turning their life over to him as the true ruler. Father, hear our prayers, hear our confessions before we come to the table. Take a moment and pray.